Okay, so we are in the third paragraph of Shema in the one, two, third Pasuk, which is Vihayalachem Latsitis, it shall be for you as Tsitis. Or Isamoso, you will see it, Uzakhartem is called Mitzvos Hashem, and you will remember all the mitzvos of God, Vaasisamosam, and you will do them. Vilosasuru, and you shall not tour, tour like in English, like take a tour, Achare Levavchem, after your hearts, Vachare Enechem, and after your eyes, Asher Atem Zoni Macharehem which you will have a tendency to st- go astray behind them. Mm-hmm. Okay, zonim is like the word zona, which is like a prostitute. Uh-huh. Okay, or an innkeeper. <laughs> oh, it is? <laughs> like discussion in the Meforshim about Rachav in Yericho. Oh. She's described as a zona. So. Uh, it's all very interesting. Yeah, I did mm-hmm. actually, no, and I mean, and a prostitute, but mm-hmm. what it means in which place and does it change mm-hmm. its meaning? Maybe she stopped being a prostitute mm-hmm. and was just keeping other parts of the hospitality as her business. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I know, I don't think anybody completely flat out says that she had, but Rashi is very interesting. I think we saw there, right? Rashi, Rashi changes how he interprets Zona, even oh. within Yehoshua. Oh. Yeah. So it's, it, it's not that he's just trying to pretend, oh, she wasn't a Zona because we like her. <laughs> She's just an innkeeper because in some places he says one and some places the other. So it seems like she actually may have changed. Like she had started doing tshuva. Mm-hmm. So she, cool. yeah, it makes sense, actually. That would explain yeah. why then when, Yoshua, when uh, Pinchas and Kalev showed up, you know, she's like all on board with God. Mm-hmm. But how could that be if she had this business? But right. you could understand it if she had been... She had been a prostitute, but at some point decided to make a change. And so she stopped with that, and she was just running it in. Then but what was her impetus it. for change? Why did she change? Something internal. I don't know. I, that would be I, there, you could, it could be from what... It, I didn't see any clarity on when that change happened. It might have been when she heard about the Nisim of the Jews coming out of Egypt, mm-hmm. the same way that Yisro oh, did. Oh, yeah. Um, mm. But I'm try, I don't remember. Wow. Okay. Anyway, side point on this was Rachav, Rachav the Zona. I never heard of her. Oh well, she's pretty famous. She's not one of the more hidden. You know, it's so funny that they don't name people like Rachav. They don't. Well, you wouldn't, because you you hear the word Rachav, and right away what follows is Hazona. So no one's gonna name him Rachav. You can't. You can't do that to anybody. Yeah. Although I don't know why I'm saying you can't do that to anybody. People give their People kids sometimes do. some very They're strange, really weird, weird names. very very That's strange names. I know. So far, I haven't met anyone named Rachav. We did oh, once God. meet someone who claimed his name was Asaf, mm-hmm. but I'm not convinced that was actually his name. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. I think he may have just been lying. <laughs> David's bodyguard. <laughs> so he may not have been giving his true name just as a matter of principle. All right. Velo sasuru. You should not go after. You should not tour. What is this tour? It's, it's convenient and confusing that latur, which is the infinitive root of taturu, lo sasuru, lo taturu, you shall not follow after, but it doesn't mean to follow after. Latur means very similar to what we would say in English, tour, to take a tour. I'm sure that's where it comes from, right? Which is to travel for the purpose of seeing the nature of the place you're traveling. That's more or less what Latour means. So, don't take a tour. Don't go straying after to see, oh, wait, my eyes, they're looking at this. What's that about? My heart is... Craving that? What's that about? Let me go explore and find out the nature of the things that... If my tour guide is my eyes and my heart, that's not going to be good, the tour is saying. So, a couple interesting things about Latour. That's going to be our topic for today. Abu Darham quotes the Gemara, which is a Gemara Yerushalmi in Brachos. Amar Rabbi Levi. Rabbi Levi taught, Liba ve'ena, the heart and the eyes... They are the two uh, <laughs> servants of sin. These are, these are the, your tour guides for sin. You know, welcome to the tour. Here's your heart. Here's your eyes. That is where they will take you if you follow them. Wow. 
You need your heart and you need your eyes, but if you follow your heart and you follow your eyes to check out what they have to show you, then they will lead you to sin. So crazy because you want to be able to feel. That's right. You want to be able to say and trust your own feelings. So that's that's tricky. Rav Hirsch, we're gonna we're gonna quote from Rav Hirsch. We'll read a little from Rav Hirsch, and he will address that issue. Yeah, it definitely. I I met with somebody recently, and she was saying to me, sometimes things. This is a very dedicated person to Torah and mitzvahs, and her children mm-hmm. are B'nai Torah. She said sometimes I find it difficult because I grew up in the generation where if it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. Mm-hmm. Follow your eyes. You know, it's really. It's in contradiction to everything that you learn in Torah. So Rav Hirsch does address it because it seems like a lot of the, what we think of as modern sort of philosophical approach in the United States really was already going strong in Rav Hirsch's day. It was really the new way of thinking, the modern liberal way of thinking, and now it's 150 years later, and it's still considered to be kind of the new modern way of thinking, but it really started then. So he addresses a lot of these things. Yeah, it makes him so um, so absolutely relevant and modern, even though he's not really right now. He's relatively modern, but he's not really right now. I don't think most people would say, oh, well, let me read a philosopher 150 years ago, and that will give me modern understanding of the world I live in, but the truth is with reverse. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And he was dealing explicitly with exactly the same mm-hmm. issues that people uh-huh. grapple with now. Like, exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, you may have noticed, I, I, it certainly caught my attention, that on Shabbos, when we have the Shabbos share, so that Pasuk, before the travel of the Arun, you remember that? I said, oh, this is such a beautiful pasuk, it should really be yes. like more well-known, except that it gets overshadowed, right? Mm-hmm. So here, Vayisu mehar Hashem, and they traveled from the mountain of God, derech shloshes yamim, a journey of three days. Va'aron bris Hashem nosea lifnehem, and the Aron of the covenant of God, so the Aron which held the luchos, traveled before them, derech shloshes yamim, a journey of three days, lasur lahem menucha, Latur, that's the word, Latur, it's with a saf. Latur, right, to, to scope out for them, Menucha, a resting place. And the cloud of God was on them by day when they traveled from the Machane, and then it, Vayihibin Soah Okay. So the Dasike, and, and you remember, I, I mentioned there, although I didn't discuss, there was both a positive and negative way of understanding that verse, right, that the Jews traveled from the mountain of God. So there's also Chazal who say that this is a negative. They were too quick to go. They didn't, you know, it's time to go, okay. <laughs> Great, you know, like it was good here, but, but the bell rang and now we're ready to go outside. And that's very different from how they left the Yom Suf where right. Moshe had to urge that, let's right. go, come on, <laughs> wear <are> your shoes, <laughs> right? Get your backpack. <laughs> Time to leave now. I want five more minutes. Okay. That was how they left the Yom because they were having such a good time collecting all the loot that was drifting up onto the beach. Um, but there was also a positive way of reading this, which is really how Rav Hirsch took it was the positive interpretation, which is that they're following the Arun. This is a way of traveling that is the positive way of traveling. Oh, the Arun so goes before, you can see already, the, the parallel to the verse in Shema. Okay? Who are you following? Are you Latour after your eyes and your heart, or are you following after the Arun? That's the difference, after your mind. Not, I mean, the Arun isn't your mind, right? But the Arun is the Torah which is what we learn with our mind. So if our mind is following the Torah and it will bring the eyes and heart along with it, that's going to be a positive trend as opposed to if the mind gets dragged along behind the eyes and the heart. So the Dasikanim over there in Bahaloscha is, and, and really what he's addressing is the three days. Did they travel three days, day and night? Because people can't stay awake for three days running. You have to sleep, right? Three days is like the limit. You say if somebody swears they slept, they didn't sleep at all for three days, you can hit him. Like, <laughs> he's, he's lying. He's lying. Because it's not possible. No. A person will die after three days without sleep, so it can't be. 
So then the Dazakanim is struggling to understand what is the Torah telling us if they traveled for three days. Maybe they traveled three days and not at night. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they traveled three days... Um, with them, you know, some of them, unfortunately, say they traveled three days, but within one day. It was a three days journey that they made, but they made it very quickly, or with rests. Mm-hmm. So Dasikanim says it was that the Levium were traveling ahead. So at night, the Levium were traveling with the Aron, with the Machane of the Shechina. And then by day, the Jews would see where they had gotten up to and catch up to them. Mm-hmm. So that's like a different, right now, we're just re- we're taking something that we learned in the Shabbos year on Shabbos. And it ties back to what we're learning here. Okay. I mean, we didn't learn, we didn't cover this Dasa Canaan on Shabbos. But. Okay. So he says the Levium were going ahead and then the Jews would catch up. But when they got to the Midbar of Paran, there's a change. Oh. Yeah. It's very timely because we're in these Parshas. Hmm. Okay. So here's, here's how, here's what he says. He says, in Bahalos, sort of before the sins, they travel from the mountain of God, and the Aron of Hashem travels before them, Lasur Lahem Menucha, to tour out, to scope out for them a gentle resting place to rest. And they follow the Aron. And then we start having the sins. That's not technically true. So the, the, the root of the sin was already before this, but, or it is this. And then in Parsha Shalach, what happens after those three days' journey? You know, we don't think about it because now we get interrupted by, by Yehibin Soa Ha'aron. But that three days' journey that's described in this verse in Baha'aloscha takes them to the edge of Israel. That's the three days' journey where they get to the end of it. And what's going to... It's the next Parsha. I can't believe we're already up to here. I'm still... My brain is still somewhere in the beginning of Shmos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hashem said to Moshe, say, Send for yourself men, and they should scope out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Jewish people. Person by person, one for each of the tribes of the fathers, tishlachu kol nasi bahem, kol nasi bahem. Send the nasi of each one. And Moshe sent them from the midbar of Paran according to the word of God. Now, I don't think we should take too much time talking about the very important question of, but if Hashem said to do it, why would it be wrong? That's an important question. I think we've talked about it before, probably, and we could talk about it, but now that we're going into summer, I feel more pressure not to take tangents off of other tangents. Okay? But what we do see is a change that happens here. The change is that for three days, the Aron has been going in front of them, Latour, to be the one scoping out for them a place of Menucha, of perfect rest and settling. Right? It's associated with Shabbos. That's what we talk about on Shabbos. And now they sent people ahead of them, Miraglim, spies, to be the ones to scope out the land where they're going to go. That's a very big change. And in fact, the Daz Kanem says, Moshe and the Aron did not move. They stayed put in the Machana when those Miraglim went out. So now you've got the people going ahead, and so to speak, the Torah mm. is supposed to follow, rather than the Torah going ahead and the people following. And that's a very, very big change. Mm-hmm. Okay. To the point where the Balhaturim says, Shalach, send for yourself. Shalach is a hint. It adds up to 338. And in the year, in the third in the third uh, millennium, in 2338, is the year that, well, I just can't, 2338, no, in 3338, in the Jewish counting, is the year that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. In other words, go follow people. You don't have the open revelation of God before you leading the way. That's Gullus. That's the first exile. 
So this is, this is the change, right? It's, the effect of it is going to be into the future as we know with the Miraglim, right? That's the first Tisha B'Av, is the Miraglim. That's because of what it means in terms of the change of how we decide where we're going. Who are we following? And it's a lot harder to follow God if you've asked him to wait back there while you go somewhere else, mm -hmm. right, and check it out. Okay. And it's, it's literal as well, because if you look at the way that, for example, Rashi explains, based on the Gemara, Rashi explains, what is this shalach lecha, send for yourself, people? Because there's other places where Hashem said, let's say, lech lecha, go for you. So it doesn't have to be that it's you deciding. It could still be that you're following God's command. But if you look at Moshe's retelling of what happened in shalach, that he says in Devarim, so over there, Moshe reminds the people, you all came to me, and you said we want to send people ahead of us to check the land. And I said, I'll consult with the Shekhinah. And the response was, shlach lecha anashim. Okay, you could send. Because what Rashi ends up saying is, I give you permission to send, not I command you to send. Mm -hmm. But you say, well, how does Rashi get that? Where did Rashi come to be able to say that it, how could you understand that it's Hashem permitting them to go, not directing them to go? You have to look at the rest of the story, which isn't in Parsha's Shlach. It happens to be mentioned in Parsha's Devarim, in the, rep, in the flashback in Devarim. So in the flashback in Devarim, it reminds the people that you came to me and asked about sending it. So this was an initiation of the people saying that they wanted to send out to see ahead of them, which Hashem's response, as Rashi brings in Shlach, is... Hashem says, I told you when you left Egypt, I will bring you up from the travails of Egypt and bring you to a good land. And now you say you need to go and check the land? You're not going to go into the land. Right? The very act of sending the spies will be what causes you not to be able to go into the land. And that's, it's, it, it's, 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 Mida Kenegad Mida isn't even giving it full justice. It's exactly caused, it is caused by the fact that they said we want to go ahead and scope it out. The fact that they're saying that after Hashem said, here's where I'm taking you. The request to send the spies is exactly that which switches from the Aron going ahead of us to the spies going ahead of us. And so the effect on it inside of us and the effect on it on our history, it's all the same impact. It's a, it's something that we thought and something that we spoke and something that we did, and that created a reality that was that way. But don't we do that all the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bad. Yeah. We, we say, okay, we no, to try I'm going to good... try to do this That's myself right. before I... Dolphin about it? Right. So right. then we have to be able to admit that. We say, you know what? Mm -hmm. As long as I thought I could take care of this, I didn't even ask you for help, God. Right. I was just working on it because I thought I had it under control. I, for, I was not tuned into the fact that there's no such thing as I this have like it under reminder, control. Like a global reminder. This is the big, I mean, for us, we can't. Despite the amount of suffering it has caused us, we have no ability to be judgmental of the generation in the desert. This is like a pretty refined problem. And God even said, yeah, all right. <laughs> like, that's a pretty mm -hmm. fine uh, mistake considering the way we behave every day. But that's, that's Adam also. It's like, okay, you know, I can handle the tree. I can mm -hmm. handle the knowledge yeah. of yeah. good and We are going to touch yeah. on that a little bit. <laughs> it's a different, way, a different way of approaching it. But yes, we are going to touch on that too. We have to be so careful that we think Hashem wants us to do it. And if Hashem agrees, sometimes Hashem doesn't stop us. Right. So the, the way that we know is who did we ask first? Mm. Who did we ask first? Where did this come from first? I, have you ever heard people ask Shilas? Like, sometimes you hear some very interesting questions. People will say, oh, I saw this one recently. Nothing to do with this community. Um, I saw this in a list of, like, question, ask the rabbi kind of questions. I was looking for a particular thing, and this was on the same page of them. The person says, is it a... Um, 
usually it's not, is it okay? You usually hear is, isn't it fine? Or is there any reason I shouldn't, right? So this question was about men having massage from women or women from men. Professional, you know. The answer was kind of like, not really such a good idea. But whatever, that was... But sometimes, you know, from the way someone asks, you can tell who was consulted first. Who did you ask first? Did you first ask your brain, even if you didn't have the answer, right? Is this right or is this wrong? Now, if you didn't have the answer, then you go to the Rav and you say, is this right or is this wrong? And hope that he has the answer that you didn't have, you know? Or sometimes even just an advisor or a friend, somebody who might know, so you find out. They know, is this right or is this wrong? Okay. Or... Did I first ask my heart and my eyes? Well, I really want to do this. Okay. I better find out, like, if there's any way I could legalize this behavior, essentially. Right? So it, we really do it ourselves. And sometimes we can ask ourselves the question, who did we ask first? Who's advising on this case? Is it that I really went with my heart and my eyes but now after the fact, I feel like, oh, I should really check if that's okay, which is a lot better than not checking if it's okay. Or am I first saying, is this what's right or what's wrong? And then, and how are my feelings about that? Right? Where do I need to, to work on? Or what part of it? Like even, even with learning, um, the Talmud says that a person should divide up their learning. We talked about this in the beginning of Shema. There's a, there's a bit there that comes up about dividing your time into two parts or into three parts, your learning time. This is really referring to men. You know, the, a certain amount of time in the written Torah, a certain amount of time in the oral Torah. So, okay. Um, but essentially, when it comes to topics, really the halacha is you should learn what you love. Learn what draws you. You know, if you're more drawn to Tehillim or to Mishnayis or to halacha or to... Musar, whatever it is, you know, stories that are Musardic. There's a lot of different ways to learn Torah. You should learn the way that draws your heart, right? That's your heart following after your mind, though. That's not like, oh, I crave, right? It's that you say, oh, okay, so I, I want to learn Torah. I, it's good. What's right and wrong? What I should do is learn Torah. So now let's go look at our heart, look at our eyes, let's see where they're drawn to, and direct that, put the power of that into the right thing. This is how we really have to try and do things. And that ties in very well with what we're talking about with Rabbi Leichter's approach about Amira Naima, about hearing the pleasant way that the Torah is instructing us, discovering the pleasant way that the Torah is teaching us. And really it's, it's hearing what the Torah is telling us, and then go and find where your heart and eye are drawn to it. But that's after you've deter- figured out and f- or found out what's right. You know what's right, and then you want to find a way to recruit your eyes and heart to follow what's right. That's following the own, not the own following the people. Okay, so here's Rapersh on this definition, this word tatur, latur, tatur. Just, I think scope out is really an even better it kind of covers better the lexical space. We have already shown that tour, used with a subjective purpose, designates an effort to get to know things, or to survey, that's a good one. To get to know things as to how they can be of use and help to us. So when the Torah says latur, o taturu, o vayaturu, this is... Get an effort to get to know things and see how they can be useful to us. So it is sort of selfish, right? How can this thing be useful to me? A little <laughs> okay. bit. Okay. The mental activity designated by tour seeks to find out what is good or not good for us. And I'm going to detour before I come back to rehearse. Mm, detour. Detour. Yeah. That's what happens when you accidentally follow your eyes and your heart. <laughs> then you need to go detour and come back. Get it right. I like that. Okay. So Latour is to survey something to see how it can be useful or helpful to me. The mental activity of Latour is trying to see, is this good or not good for me? 
Now that's kind of non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. So we can understand that in terms of what we just talked about, right? Is this good or not good for me? Well, whose definition of good am I using? Is it my eye's definition of good? Is it my heart's definition of good? Or is it my mind's definition of good? Whose definition of good is this? That is the, the critical question. Who's the one saying this is so good? Mm-hmm. Because Latour could be positive. The Aron was looking for a place for them to have menucha, so to speak, right? It was going ahead of them to find them their way to menucha. That's good, but that's because it's the Aron, that's the Torah inside there. So this is the, this is the critical question. Levav, one's innermost heart, forms wishes. Enayim, eyes, seek the means to satisfy the wishes. The heart craves it. The eyes go looking outside of the body. Where can I find it? How can I satisfy the wish that's in the heart? And indeed, left to itself, it is only one's ego with all its requirements, urges, and desires which forms the motives of this wishing heart. The eyes only recognize the material relationships of the material world. When your eyes look out, they can't see the spiritual. They only see the physical. So left to their own devices, the heart is only going to look for on its own will look for ego fulfillment. And the eyes, in seeking to fulfill those wishes, only have access to the physical. So in service of a wishing heart and recognizing eye, if your mind is only following the eye and the heart and serving the eye and the heart, then it'll think that anything, it will call everything good, which is in accordance with with one's own sensuous nature, and will call everything bad, which doesn't offer satisfaction to it or stands in the way of yielding satisfaction. Secular education. It's like education. Yeah. It's every single love song that was ever written. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the entire radio full of love songs that says if it feels good, it is good. Uh-huh. If I want it, it is good, mm-hmm. is all the eye and the heart. That is what they will naturally do. The heart seeks to feel satisfied and the eye looks to what it can see, which is material, to satisfy that. Okay. So now, this is an idea which I think I may have quoted here. I'm not sure. I first saw this from Rav Moshe Eisman in Awake at the Wheel. And then, because he wrote that, I realized that Rav Hirsch had really said it also before that, which makes sense. Rabbi Eisman is yekish. Very possible that that was where he took this approach from altogether, but I didn't, I didn't realize it until I had seen it. Okay. Going back to the snake in the Garden of Eden. Rav Hirsch brings an approach to the snake like this. He says, the contrast to animals is the touchstone and the rock by which and on which the morality of men proves itself or splits asunder, which is poetic, but a little difficult to parse. The way the place where our Bechira will prove us to be something greater than animals is in the difference between us and animals. And the place where our bad Bechira, mm-hmm. bad choices, will make us even lower than animals will be again applying to that, that moment, that space in our free will that distinguishes us from animals. So what is this idea Right, we know we talk about like that we're different from animals. Where is this key bechira point mm-hmm. that it comes into our lives and is the distinction between human and animal? So Rav Hirsch says, this is his commentary on Bracious Gimel Aleph. Uh, it was animal wisdom which lured the first human beings from their duty. And today, it's the same animal wisdom which serves as a midwife to every sin. Whoa. (laughs) In other words, that snake is still whispering in our ear. You know, when you, the power of words is that you can take an idea from one person's mind and put it in someone else's mind. The tool for that is words. When you listen to someone, you allow their ideas into your mind, which is mostly a very generous thing to do. But when Chava listened to the snake, she received 
some idea of Nahash into humanity, into the mind of people. Right? This is not only men or women. This is to all of us. So that voice of the snake is still whispering. So what is this whisper? Animals are really... See, the snake, the snake says to her, is it possible that God told you not to eat from all the trees of the garden? Like, there's all these beautiful trees and all this food. Obviously, you're meant to eat it if it's there. And she said, well, we're allowed to eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, just not one tree. And the snake says, no, you won't die because God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, Yode Tovara. You'll know the difference between good and bad. Mm-hmm. Right? We said that Latour means to scope out or survey something to determine if it's useful or not useful, to figure out if it is good for us. And the snake says, no, it can be, you. What, what is no problem, you can be like God, you'll know what's good and bad. And Rav Hirsch says, animals really are like God in knowing what's good and bad. That's weird, right? That's not what I think I usually hear in Shiorim. What does he mean by that? He says, animals have innate instinct. Mm-hmm. This instinct is the voice of God, the will of God for them. God speaks to animals through their instincts. What they think is good, if it feels good, it is good. If it tastes good, it is good. How does an animal know what's correct and healthy for it to eat? If it tastes good for the animal, it's good for it. But if you, and if you watch animals take care of their young, you know, and you watch them. Yeah, they do it. Them, they do. Know, if they, it, it like, feels right, it is right. Mm. They don't determine it by calculating. No, of course not. The voice of God, meaning the expression of God's will, is in their instincts. That is how Hashem tells them what's good and what's bad for them. That's what's good for an animal. That's what's bad for an animal. So they do what Hashem instructs them and what dominates them from inside. They really can't do anything other than that. And that's what's good. And everything their instinct says, ooh, not so much. I don't feel good about that. That's what's bad. And it is good and it is bad. Why is it absolutely good and bad? Because that is God's will. Good, good is God's will. Bad is not God's will. But that's not true for people. And what the snake was telling Chava was what it's like to be an animal. He's saying, no, I don't understand you. How can it be that you have to eat some of this and not eat some of that if it's all so delicious? You eat. You eat and that's you know, that, it's like an animal. That's what's good. But mankind is created to decide for the good and to eschew evil from his own free choice and consciousness of duty. He is to give his sensuous nature its due. That means you have to take care of your eyes and your heart and feed them. But not because of the allure of the senses, but from a feeling of duty. That's what we're talking about with the food, right? Rav Hirsch, commentary on Bereshus, Paragimel, beginning of Gimel. Yeah, really, when, when you read it carefully, you see exactly. Like this idea is very much even what we saw in Ramchal at the end of Prishus in Masil Shisharn, where he says, after all this talking about what we have to refrain and be- become kadosh by not indulging our bodies, in the end, if somebody does not take from the world that which he actually does require, this is bad. This is wrong. What your body needs, it really needs. And you, if you deny what your body actually needs, you're damaging the tools God has given you to serve him in the world. You can't do that either. But it has to come. Rav Hirsch is really emphasizing what, what Ramchal said, only he didn't even say it quite as strongly, which is it has to come from the feeling of duty, of what is right or wrong in the mind, not what the body is craving. So when the body says, oh, I really want ice cream, right? <laughs> we don't feed the body ice cream because it craves ice cream. We think. Now, we say, okay, I, maybe I need something sweet. Maybe I just need something not so sweet. Maybe it's just time to eat, right? What do I really require? And let me figure out what I require and do that. Or maybe someone's pregnant and then they say, okay, well, if I'm craving it, it is possible that that is a signal that there's something in there that I really need. And if I can't figure out what it is, so maybe I'll just have the ice cream. But it's a reasoned 
logical decision based on what is right and wrong, what is duty, not based on what the body is craving. Sensual enjoyment is to be a moral, free-willed act, which is so awesome. It really is the precious of Ramchal that he's saying here. It's really exactly the precious of Ramchal. He's not saying go be a hermit and live on the top of a mountain with no food and no clothing. And he's not saying that. He's saying, but that cannot be the leader. It's exactly the, the mushal, not the mushal, the image of the Aaron leading the way is a perfect, perfect help to understanding the idea of the eyes and the heart and their relationship to the mind. He is never to be an animal. For that purpose, man has both sensuality and godliness within him. And that which is good and right must often oppose his sensuality. Bad and evil must often appear attractive and tempting to him, so that for the sake of his high godly calling, he practices good and eschews evil with free will the energy of his godly nature. But that's in spite of sensuality. It's never yielding to the passion. That is why the voice of God does not speak in man, but to man, to say what is good and what is bad. And the Nachash, I'm not, I'm not trying to absolve the Nachash of what it did, <laughs> right? But the Nachash and Chava are speaking two different languages. They are from two different worlds. Chava saying, God said, eat from these trees and not from those trees. And the snake is saying, I don't even understand what that could mean. What do you mean God told you not to eat from a tree? If it tastes good, eat it. If it doesn't taste good, don't eat it. That's how animals live. And that's fine because God's will is expressed within them as whatever they want, that's what they should go get. And that's, that's fine. And also he goes further, you know, it's like, touch it. It didn't do it. I mean, an animal right. will try, think, well, But that's proving, yeah. meaning what he's trying to prove to her is if it felt okay, it was fine. That's right. exactly yeah, what he's saying. He's saying, yeah. look, touch it. Yeah. See, nothing happened. You're fine. If it feels good, if it doesn't do anything to you, then yeah, it's okay. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you okay. just say one more time? Yeah. You said the voice of That is why the voice, voice of, God of God does of not God speak, speak in him, oh. but to him. Not in him, okay. But to him. But to him. To say what is good and what is mm -hmm. bad. And this voice of God speaking to him finds opposition in his excited sensuality when the latter is allowed to speak on its own, mm -hmm. untouched and uncontrolled by godly nature. So when the eyes and the heart start screaming out, without any control, then they may be in opposition to the voice of God. The voice of God breathed into him. So now he's saying, he's answering the question that Joni might have asked, which is, but what about our inner conscience? Right? Don't you want to be able to trust some kind of inner sense of what's right and wrong? So this is, that's this next sentence now. He's he anticipating the question. The voice of God breathed into him his conscience, whose messenger we have recognized shame to be. It's interesting. He says this because it was just a verse before, right? That the man and the woman were unclothed, but they had no shame about that. So he says, shame is the messenger of the conscience. Shame is a voice to tell you that you may be trampling on something that was wrong. But this conscience only warns man in general to be good and avoid evil. This is a very fine distinction and a very useful one. Mm -hmm. The voice of our conscience is a voice of God inside of us. But what it is able to warn us of is, do what's right, don't do what's wrong. Please do what's right, don't do what's wrong. But to know what is good and what is evil, he has to hear from the mouth of God. We need the Torah to tell us what is good and what is evil. We don't know it on our own. What we can know on our own from inside of us is that we have a desire to do what is right versus what is wrong. And that's very important because even just in the relationship with the eyes and the heart who are wanting whatever they're wanting, to have an inner desire to want to do what's right, is a, is a, that is the powerful internal force that allows us to follow our minds and to let our minds say, no, okay, here's what's right. Now you guys go get them, right? Look at the cloud and the pillar of fire and follow that. You could use your eyes to follow that, but you got to know what you're following. 
You're not just looking all over the place. What are you following? Okay, so our, I, I, this definition mm-hmm. of conscience is awesome. Really awesome. Because we all know that feeling where you want to do what's right and you're not even sure. Right? So that's, that explains it. Because the limitation of our conscience is we don't know what's right and wrong, but we know that we, be, that we want to know what's right and wrong. That we want to do what's right. That would be an interesting topic for another time. She'ifa, desire to do what's right. Animals only have to develop their sensual nature. Their intelligence is in the service of the sensual nature. So even the intelligence that animals have is only to serve the eyes and the heart. But that's not the purpose of man in the world. We're here, la'avda ulashamra. We're here in service of God and in service of the world and to represent God to the world. That is our mission. So for this service, the delights and the fruits of paradise were permitted to him. They're, it's allowed in service of the mission. So you remember how in this other, in Parsha Shalach, this is why I detoured, okay, where Rav Hirsch is saying that the heart forms the wishes, the eye seek the means to satisfy the wish, and that left to their own devices, the eye and the heart will call everything good, which feels good, and everything bad, which isn't satisfying. And that really... Um, what we need to do is be following because of duty, not because of desire. That what we do, and that allows us to lead our eyes and our heart rather than follow them. Man is there for God and the world and is joyfully to devote his personal nature to this higher calling. So it's not out of his personal nature, but out of relation to the higher calling that we have to find out what's good and bad. Since we are here for something more than just to propagate the species, we're here to serve God and we're here to serve the world, sort of the kohanim of the planet, then our decisions on right and wrong have to be in terms of that mission, not the mission of animals, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. That's not our mission. There is a mitzvah to do that, but it's not our mission. Okay. So this tree... The purpose of having a tree in the garden that we couldn't eat. Right? Why have it there at all? So Rav Hirsch says, for that purpose, the tree stood to him, for him in all its glory, appealing to his senses. His whole personal nature must say to him, this is good. But God's word, forbidding the eating of it, says it's bad. God said, don't eat from this tree. The body says, eat from the tree. And that was to be for him the model, the pattern, and the rule for what is good and bad for mankind. That was the exercise. To understand your mission in life is to determine what's good and bad based on your mission of serving God. So whatever God says is good is good for you. Whatever God says is bad is bad for you. That way you know you're not an animal. Because an animal has a different mission. And it fulfills its mission by what feels good is good, what feels bad is bad. And that's how it fulfills its mission. But that's not your mission. You have a different mission. Since your goal is different, so the means to get to the goal are different. Some of them are the same. I mean, we also have pruruvu. We also be fruitful and multiply. But it's a different mission. So it can't override. You can never have the means override your actual goal. Are you saying that's a bad different news. mission from animals? From animals. A different a mission a different from image, A mission from, from um, the Goyim. We, this is we, the Garden of so, Eden. There's no distinction we, here. Right. So it's always it's come, humanity. So do we? How do we as Jews express that mission? Right. So the truth is, this mission that's that's of humankind in Gan Eden is human the same mission for every, of Jews. Of right. Jews. Yeah. Oh. Okay. This is the gift that we're given okay. in getting the Torah is having God's word spoken to us to tell us oh, what is right and wrong. Okay. And so then, we have Torah and sorry for else. It's sad. Like, it's very yeah. sad. Rav Hirsch's <laughs> approach is always that at the end of days, yeah. this will bring humanity back. They will follow the Jews okay. back yeah. into a more perfect state. I understand but there's that. no, the there's meantime. no denying. <laughs> it is in the meantime. I mean, it is like tragic in the meantime. Yeah. I saw in this Ben Asor from Revolbi. This is. He says, when a spaceship goes, this is in the 60s, when, this, when a spaceship goes out, right, you send a rocket to the moon, 
at every moment you've got your radio connection open to mission control. And they will tell you, adjust your course settings to 22, 33, whatever, you know, however they give their uh, course settings, and the astronauts will do it. Now imagine, you know, and then they say fire this thruster and that booster. And imagine if, you know, they go around the back, the dark side of the moon, and all of a sudden they can't hear mission control. That's terrifying. It's pretty scary for mission control, but it's terrifying for the astronauts because they only have their own perspective to work with. Now, on the one hand, ultimately they have to rely on that, but what they want is to get detailed instructions from mission control because mission control has a broader perspective on the situation. They have the readouts of all the equipment. They also can do all kinds of other measurements, and you've got their satellites going, right? He says, the Torah is our mission control. You don't envy somebody who's out in outer space with no mission control talking to them and say, well, at least they can do whatever they feel like doing. You know, like, I want to see that side of the moon. Why are you telling me I can't go there? Why do you say I have to go to this side? I want to see that side. It's like, I'm doing you a favor by telling you, right? Like, this is a gift. It's a gift to have the instructions to tell you where you can go. That was one of the things I used to tell my kids when they walked on the board. <laughs> don't judge. They don't have they're on their own but but you wouldn't Way envy somebody own. for being on their own any no. more than you would envy somebody you know who says well i never you know fin i never finished elementary school so obviously i can't take a job that makes me have to you know and it's like you don't envy that that's a limitation that's not a freedom okay so back to reversion shalach if you are, okay, he says, if the mind is only investigating the world, Latour, through the spectacles, through the lenses of heart and eyes, if we judge things based on what we feel and what we see, then we're only going to be able, the lens is going to dictate what we're able to look at. And then we'll only be able to measure and value things according to their relationship in that sphere of eyes and heart, meaning it limits. Whereas if the mind can work in terms of Torah, in terms of thought, in terms of intelligence, to understand what God is saying is right and wrong, it's not limited by the fears and hopes of the eyes and the heart. And then you can go and address the fears and hopes of the mind and the heart. Because fear is supposed to be a, seg a signal, like a useful way of telling you that maybe you need to reevaluate. Maybe there's something there. You know, fear, one definition for fear is a reminder. Do you have water? Yeah, I have. Okay. Fear is a reminder that you might need to take more action to protect the situation or defend the situation, right? Hope also might be a reminder that you might need to take more action in order to help ensure a situation. But when fear and hope are the drivers of the decisions, then everything and anything can break loose, and you break faith with God. That is, lo asher That you go astray after them. The, the sasuru is not going astray. It's where you're following who's doing the lookout. But it will lead inevitably to that you will go astray after them. If God and his Torah form the fundamental basis of all of our acts, the starting point of our considerations, thoughts, and judgments, if we look on our whole being with our heart and our eye in the service of a higher God, subordinate the wishes and dislikes of our hearts to his wishes and dislikes, then we feel at one with God, and we no longer feel that power and greatness lie in satisfying senses or dictates of our hearts, but in the exertion of our moral will, which will we absorb into the will of God. We can inform the inner conscience, the inner will, through God's word. And when, we are when our starting point is that we're in service of Hashem, then we can use the heart and the mind to make that happen. And with God, we feel our own strength and power over our own world. While without him, the most gigantic force in the world shrinks to pygmy-like nothingness. 
if we feel that we are performing God's will, not our own will, God's will, and that is our will, because we want to do what's good, that's the conscience side, then nothing in the world seems too overwhelming. Because no force is too great. Because this is God's will. It's my will, because it's my will to do God's will, but it's God's will, so nothing is too overwhelming. And if we're not serving him, if we're serving just our own desires and wishes, then no matter how strong and tough we think we are, we realize we're really too small. There's always stuff that's much stronger than us that will overwhelm us. And in this way, we can understand what happens with hope and fear as well, hope and fear being functions of the eyes and the heart. When we feel that we're doing God's word, then our hopes and our fears are useful. They're part of the service of God. When not in the service of God, hopes and fears become enormous, and we are too small to conquer them. There's just sort of unlimited potential catastrophe out there, and there's unlimited poten uh, potential desire out there. So you never can do it. So do you, you're saying that the, that the hopes and fears are, did you say signs? What did they, you say? Are, they are what? They are um, I don't remember what word I used, or? like functions of the heart and the mind. Oh. Of the, sorry, the heart and the eyes. So they are there to serve us. They are functions of the heart and the eyes is the hope and the fear. So hope and fear are an interpretation of what we think the world around us is, right? Mm -hmm. Either we're afraid of it creating something that will hurt us or we're hoping for what we could achieve in it. Mm -hmm. So that hope and fear are kind of those lenses through which we're seeing the world. If we're doing, if we are thinking about things in such a way that our attitude is that we're approaching the world as an Evet Hashem, as I have a duty, I have a mission, I'm here to serve the world and people, I'm here to serve God, right? Then hope and fear are like cues maybe to check something out or investigate it, but they're not overwhelming because God's will and God's strength will dominate everything. But when we think we're there for ourselves, for our hearts and our, and our eyes, then hope and fear loom much, they, they become overwhelming. They become completely overwhelming because it is not possible. The world just becomes too strong for us. There's no way. It's too big. It's too unfair. It's too whatever other. Don't we, what do we call a rock? Tsur. Oh, that's interesting. Is it related to tour? I don't know. No, but, because I was thinking that that's a rock. Yeah. So, well, is yeah. that what it, it is? It could be. I don't know. But you're saying it's the kind of thing. Rav Hirsch didn't say no, that. It, yeah. But no, 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 he didn't say tzor, but he he no. often connects words. But I don't know okay. if he connects those. Know, it's an interesting know. thought. I, that's okay. a different word than tour. So since we started a tiny bit late, I just want to do one or two more small points before ending. Okay. This is from um, the Chafetz Chaim on the Sitter. Chazal have told us. You shall not follow after your heart. Zo apikorsus. This refers to apikorsus, meaning your heart would be drawn after apikorsus. Don't follow that. As it says, Amr Navo Belibo. Okay. And what kind of temptations is the heart tempting to you to? Heresy, apikorsus. What kind of temptations do your eyes lead you to? Znus, immorality. This is znus, this is immorality. So we understand that very simply. The eye sees, and what the eye sees, then the heart craves after. So that's the eye leading. So the eye leads for the immorality. But how do we understand the heart leading for the apikorsus? Why, why should hearts be drawn after apikorsus? So here's how the Chafetz Chaim explained this question on, on the Chazal. He says, It is a common thing to hear from people who feel that they are enlightened and educated. Right? He's talking about the time of Haskalah. So Haskalah meaning enlightenment, but used usually in Torah sources as not a positive description. Chachamim be'eneihem people who are wise in their own eyes. I, I remember hearing this from older generations. 
that people who feel that they are enlightened, that they are modern thinkers, they're wise in their own eyes, meaning their wisdom is whatever they want their wisdom to be, that practical mitzvot are not really necessary. The ha'ikar ha'nidrash min ha'adam, the main thing that a person is obligated to is a lave tov and nothing more. Now this is tricky because to know how to, you, you might be able to hear there's something funny about that, but it's a difficult argument to argue back on because there's all these sources about the importance of lave tov. We talked about it even with lave tov, with ayin tova, right? Like this, right? And therefore, the mitzvahs themselves are not really the main thing. It's just the good heart that matters. I remember hearing this. I remember hearing from a member of the older generation who had offended almost everyone in the family. There were quite a few people who wouldn't speak to this person. They were so angry and so hurt by them. Mm. I don't need, you know, I don't feel that I need to do all these mitzvahs because I'm a good person and I don't hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, I think a lot of people feel hurt by you. I didn't <laughs> say that. I was just a little girl, <laughs> right? Because... Yeah. <laughs> because the fact is that saying that you'll have a good heart and therefore you don't hurt people doesn't actually prevent you from hurting people. Only active mitzvos will protect, <laughs> help protect yes, you. That's also the current generation. The I'm whole, sure it's still whole, true. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. This is locks and bagels me, Judaism. Eat locks, eat yes. bagels, have a good heart. You a mean well. Conservative. I mean well. I mean, the truth is, even reason. Christians say the road yeah. to hell is paved with good intentions. You know, yeah. like, good intention is enough. It's exactly. not a Jewish, or probably not even a Christian concept, but I don't know. I wouldn't speak for them. Okay. Shita zo hishita shal apikorsus veminus. This approach is an approach of apikorsus, of heresy, and minus, and uh, not this religion. Denying the principles of Torah and denying God, apikorsus and minus. And in order to prevent us, or to help us get out of this scrambled way of thinking, the Torah warns us, do not go astray after your heart. Don't go after. We just read. They all have toys. Hashem You have to love Hashem with all your heart, and that's the main thing, right? You're loving God, and that's so. It's an ikker, right? And then we read If you do the mitzvos, if you don't do the mitzvos, it has to be tied to the mitzvos to actual actions and a way of living that is in accordance with what the Torah instructs us is right and wrong. Because it's the same call, but one is the call of the ego, one is the call of Hashem. Of course. Yes. So now I'm obligated. If I love God, so I'm in, I saying, what, what can I do? This is a wonderful line. Rabbi Goldberg just said it. What can I do to give back to you? When we come from a place of passionate love for Hashem, what, that's the feeling. It's a natural feeling. What can I do? to give back to you. I'll do what you want me to do. What? Tell me. Tell me what can I do to give back to you, as the Torah tells us. That is love to hear. You know, like that's... Mission control is, okay. is caring. Okay? Even though so, some of the mitzvahs, we do them. They, they, we don't really understand why... That's right. We don't understand. Traveling dishes. Or that's right. It's... It's because Hashem said it's important to him, so I do it. It, it doesn't That's sound like, like it's such a good thing to be like, well, caring for somebody, my neighbor, sounds a lot more important that's than, right. than uh, maybe toiling dishes or right. something like that. So that's the distinction between this point that he's saying, the idea that, well, is, is the main thing that matters being a nice person, or is the main thing that matters that I'm doing what is good and right? Now, the, this apicorsis that he's saying that he's describing is where you say those two things are the same. When you're saying that doing what is good and what is right means being nice, and that's enough. That's, it's not always true. A person might ask me to do something for them that's wrong, and I have to tell them no, and maybe they don't think I'm nice. For sure, my kids. <laughs> right? They don't always think I'm so nice. <laughs> but is the main thing that, they sh- that I should be nice to them and make them think I'm being nice to them? Or is the main thing that I should do what's good and what's right and hopefully help them do what's good and what's right? 
It's not it's not a kindness really to a child to do right. So so which is it? When you say they are one and the same, then it is a denial. You're saying that the the God is good heartedness. Not the God is the one who will speak to you and tell you what is right and what is right. wrong. This it's it's really the difference between the snake and Chava. It's really that same difference, that same distinction, but here's how it here's how it emerges and is expressed in the context of how we see the world. Does every Jew have within him the ability to grasp? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an inheritance. Mm -hmm. It's handed down from our fathers. But we have to learn. We don't know by ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't know by ourselves. We have to learn. But if we don't, for example, if we don't learn every single mitzvah, the only thing we really have is to look at our, what did our ancestors do? What was our Masorah? It's a big help. What? Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, but we, we have to, right. I mean, then we can it's do really carries us in between. about it. But yeah. That's right. It carries us we in between. We have to look at our Masorah. Okay. So that's why there's a pasuk, Amar, Naval Belibo, Enelokim. Naval said in his heart, there's no God. Right? Because... It's not God who's telling me what to do and what not to do. It's my heart telling me, oh, this will be nice. Would I like that? Yeah, okay, so I'll do that for other people. That's not a bad thing. That's fine if it's in service of God. But if it is the God, now it's apicorsis. Now you've denied God. Okay. Allah hachova, but there is an obligation. This is the Chafetz Chaim, right? We think of him as very warm and fuzzy, right? I'm sure that you didn't expect him to go in that direction when I said we're going to read from the Chafetz Chaim. Right? I mean, don't say Lashon Hara. You shouldn't talk bad about people. You shouldn't. We're not no, talking about that. Like, that's, that's the Chavetz Chaim. Yeah, I'm saying that's the Chavetz Chaim. Because it goes together. The kind of care that would make a person write a whole sefer about Tusvarn on how you can be careful not to speak against someone, not to hurt them, to describe the kind of damage you could do, to go to the trouble of making it clear to you how much you could hurt somebody if you speak incorrectly. And to write another safer for boys who ended up in the army so that they would understand how to daven and how to do what they can in the most minimal way and still be able to serve Hashem in a situation where they can't do the mitzvahs normally. And then to go write a whole Mishnah Bura. That's all the same quality. It's the same Chavetz Chaim who writes the Mishnah Bura, who tells you all the halachos is the same Chavetz Chaim who tells you about Lashon Hara. That's, that's the secret, Right? It is an obligation on every Jewish person, Lakayim is called mitzvah Hashem, to keep all the mitzvahs of God. Shehain virakain mashrishos ba'adam es ha'hashem. Because it is through doing the mitzvahs that it implants and causes to take root inside of us the recognition and the faith in God and educate us to the midos tovos. It is through the mitzvahs we become educated to a lev tov. It's not the lev tov that we just do on its own. Okay. There are three taivas in a person, and with this we'll, we'll close, and Amit Hashem will continue next week. We'll have to continue next week. I don't know what I'll do, because the kids are going to start being home, but mm-hmm. somehow we'll have to continue anyway. Um, the Gra asks, why does the Torah tell us, Lo sasuru after your heart, and after your eyes, that you go astray after them or become unfaithful through them. He says it's describing three different kinds of taiva that will seek to be the leaders. Right? A taiva, I don't have it in front of me, so I hope I'm not misquoting it, but Rav Hirsch has a wonderful description of taiva. He says, it's seeking to expand my circle of influence, like seeking to expand out what is part of me, what is included in myself. So it's a kind of a, a spreading out, but it's in a negative way. It's a selfish kind of trying to draw things from having their own identity into, into me. Yeah. Into me, yeah. So this is this three kinds of taiva. And the taiva will always seek us to, <clears throat> to be the leader. And, you know, as we've spent, I think, a lot of time today talking about the idea of the mind and the God's voice of what's right and wrong, telling us what's right and wrong, and then the other things will serve that. So the gross is three kinds of taiva. One is known as chayfetz, one is known as chemda, one is known as taiva. These are three different terms for desires. Chayfetz corresponds to 
eating. Meaning the desire described in Chayfetz tends to be eating. There's other things it can go to, but presumably what the Gra is saying is that it's, they, they have some similarity to the taiva of the food. Chemda, desire, is the description for money, mm-hmm. a craving of money. I think, okay, these are examples. I don't think they're limited to money. I think what the Gura is saying is that it's a different craving that a person has for money than a person has for food. It's satisfying a different desire. So these are the classic examples of them. It doesn't mean you couldn't also have those kinds of desires on other things, but it would help you understand them. So chayfetz is the kind of desire for eating, for food. Chemda is for money. Taiva is for znus, for immorality. These are three kinds of desire. And taiva is greater, greater as in bigger, not, not better. Taiva is more, more than chemda, and chemda is more than chayfetz. These are stronger urges. Taiva is a stronger urge than chemda. Chemda is a stronger urge than chayfetz. Which is why we see that sometimes one taiva can overrule another, right? A person craves two things. Maybe not one is right and one is wrong. They're both, but sometimes you can discipline yourself in one area because you have an even greater desire in another area. So he says, this is what the Torah is warning about. Don't go after your heart. That corresponds to the taiva, the chayfetz taiva of eating. Because that can become complete gluttony. Right? And that's that that connects to other ideas like food, bread is always connected with the idea of the heart this is, okay the Torah warns us don't go following your eyes that would be after money right, that would be our equivalent would be probably designer labels right, that you see them and you want them, is there anything better about the one with the alligator or not with, you know, like not really necessarily. I mean, there can be. Sometimes it's a proxy, right? But that's just, that's not really what drives us when we see that kind of thing. That's after money. That's warning us against following a craving or a desire for immorality. Okay. And um, right now I'm just, I'm planning to have sheer next week. Probably the kids will be sleeping in anyway. So. <laughs> Maybe not this late. I could dream. Right? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Next week in the Shashamu. So you're not going to continue all summer. So I haven't, I haven't really figured out. I have to. I haven't finished scheduling the kids' summer, which is a bit of a 